Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. The Buddha constituted the monastic Sangha as a structured and regulated moral community in which each individual monastic has certain obligations to each other, to his or her own practice, and to the broader lay community, the parisa, sitting around, in contrast to the sangha. The Buddha did not organize anything equivalent for those who lead worldly lives of work and play, crops and crafts, spouses and kids. In effect, the lay parisa are free-floating agents with a sangha of monks or nuns in their midst. In fact, the Buddha seems to have had confidence in the laity's ability to organize and work things out for themselves as needed. When the Buddha was dying, he was asked by his assistant Ananda what to do with his body. The Buddha replied that it was no concern for the monks. As the reader might recall, the Buddha did not want the monks to serve as priests. His words were, For there are wise katiyas, brahmins, and householders who are devoted to the Tathagata. They will take care of the funeral. Now the idea of the Purisai accepting a sangha into its midst an arrangement found in almost every village in Buddhist Asia, is that the Sangha will have a wholesome influence on the broader culture, a civilizing, peaceful, and altruistic influence. Just as it benefits us to have artists, civically-minded citizens, and good plumbers among us, It ennobles us to have saints and sages, adepts and arahants, or people of spiritual attainment, in our midst. The more, the better. The monastics provide dharmic instruction, set a moral example, and also tend to support civil society through creating schools and orphanages and such. The primary channel of influence floating out from the Sangha into the lay community is friendship, and particularly admirable friendship in Pali, Kalyanamitata. If I choose to befriend and hang out with persons consummate in virtue, in generosity, in serenity, and in wisdom, and to open my mind and heart to what I might be able to learn from them, This will make a huge difference in the shape of my life. If enough of us do the same, our lay community becomes a culture of awakening, which is the point of this series of talks. The following dialogue expresses in a rather striking way the critical importance the Buddha attached to the simple principle of admirable friendship. Ananda said to the Buddha, 
Venerable Sir, this is half of the holy life, that is, admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable comradeship. The Blessed One said, Not so, Ananda, not so, Ananda. This is the entire holy life, Ananda. That is, admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable comradeship. When a bhikkhu has an admirable friend, an admirable companion, an admirable comrade, it is to be expected that he will develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. An admirable friend imparts the Buddha's wisdom to me in two ways. First, he can teach me the Dharma, beginning with the value of harmlessness and generosity, then the teaching of karma, in brief, that a more fulfilling life is built on the foundation of harmlessness and generosity than on self-interest. Then, on how to recognize when my intentions are pure or tainted. When he feels I'm ready, he takes me through the eight noble steps of the higher path of practice, at some point even teaching me the art of meditation. Second, he can exemplify the Dharma for me. I can see for myself what it is to live a life based on all these principles, what the effects of doing so are on character and well-being, and how such a life provides benefits for others that intersect with such a life. And I can see all that in the life of my admirable friend. It is up to me to embrace and practice the Dharma and to develop spiritually as a result. Admirable friendship would have been the only means of accessing the Dharma in the early centuries. Other options have emerged over the centuries due to technology, first with the written word and books, then with modern communications and online access with the click of a mouse with the mouse that brought you to this very podcast, and finally through Zoom classes. But nothing beats the one-on-one contact and the presence of real-life role models available through admirable friendship. The social role of the monastic sangha is summarized by the Buddha. Monks, for this reason, those matters which I have discovered and proclaimed should be thoroughly learnt by you. Practice developed and cultivated so that this holy life may endure for a long time, that it may be for the benefit and happiness of the multitude out of compassion for the world, for the benefit and happiness of deities and humans. Now I, as a layperson, may at different points in my life make different decisions on the basis of the influence of my admirable friends. I may become curious or inspired enough to emulate parts of the holy life, look for opportunities to practice generosity, learn and try to adhere to the precepts, become reflective of my own intentions as I move through the day, I might at some point want to declare enough of an affinity for the holy life to declare, these will be the guiding principles in my life. At that point, I might begin to study 
and practice the Noble Eightfold Path. And I'll find at every step the entire path of practice is in its entirety open to me. For the Buddha, there were no esoteric teachings. It was all available to the laity. The Buddha declared, I do not teach with a closed fist. My neighbor or my brother or my sister might not be as inspired as I, nor have as much time to befriend the Sangha, nor to study and practice the Dharma. This means that the influence of the Sangha in our midst will spread unevenly in our village. Some may follow the precepts, but not study or meditate. Others may excel and reach high spiritual attainments. Others might go over to the bright side and ordain into the Sangha themselves. This is all under the influence of admirable friends. So to start, I have to cultivate some admirable friendships. But who are worthy candidates? Are potential admirable friends to be found only in the monastic Sangha? Is any monk or nun a worthy candidate? The answer to both questions is no. We expect the Sangha at least to have a high concentration of potential admirable friends. After all, learning, practicing, teaching, and setting a good example of the Dharma is their job, and they enjoy the optimal conditions for pursuing these. They tend to be quite adept and to have a lot to teach and embody. Moreover, they are in uniform. Just look for the robes and bald heads, and so easily identified. But many people who are not monastics manage to excel in the path and reach high levels of attainment. They also can be quite adept and have a lot to teach and embody. And many newer monks, lazy or untalented monks, may have no attainments at all. Other monks, although quite adept, might be shy or have little talent for teaching. Shop around and you should find that reputations of the adepts precede them. Apparently, in recognition of this adeptness of many lay folks, the Buddha seems to have employed the word sangha with a slightly different meaning, one that includes adepts of very high attainment, both monastic and lay. In Pali, the two meanings of sangha are distinguished as bhikkhu sangha, that is, monastic sangha, and savaka sangha, or listener sangha. Listeners are disciples, monastic or lay. The word arya sangha, or noble sangha, also occurs, seemingly in the same meaning as the listener sangha. More generally, the word noble or arya is applied to those of this required level of spiritual attainment or adeptness. This is the noble that we find in the Four Noble Truths and in the Noble Eightfold Path, for that is their realm. The monastic Sangha is designed to spin off noble ones, but sometimes noble ones arise without joining the monastic Sangha much as adept scientists can arise without completing the training for a Ph.D. 
what is the level of attainment then that qualifies one as noble? The Buddha spoke of four levels of awakening and gave criteria for each. The highest is that of the arahant, who is fully awakened. The Buddha was an arahant, and they seem to have been common in the monastic sangha at the time of the Buddha, but virtually unheard of in the lay parisa. Below arahant are non-returner and once-returner, and there seem to have been many lay and monastics in these categories at the time of the Buddha. The initial level of awakening is called stream entry. The stream enterer meets the minimal requirement for being a noble one. The stream enterer is able to discern nirvana, to see clearly that there is such a thing without having to actually experience it in full to have developed a high degree of virtue, and to have attained unshakable faith in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The stream-enterer is also somebody who has taken full possession of the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path is the stream that the stream-enterer has entered. So I should seek out noble ones where I can, as prime candidates for admirable friendship. Unfortunately, if I ask a monk or nun, are you a noble one? Or are you a stream enterer or above? They won't tell me. The reason is that their monastic precepts, the winia, prohibits them from discussing their attainments with lay people. Now, why would the Buddha create such a rule? There is another influence that ripples out when a community accepts a monastic sangha into its midst, which is much like leaving a basket of kittens in the town square. The monastic sangha is totally helpless with regard to providing their own material needs. They need to be fed and clothed and otherwise provided for. They don't need a lot. They are renunciates after all but their monastic code prohibits them from any kind of business or exchange, from growing their own food, even from cooking their own food. This is by the Buddha's design. Now, why would the Buddha create such rules? Generosity is the most foundational Buddhist practice. The lifeblood of the Buddhist community is generosity, and the interchange between lay and monastic is its beating heart. For the symbiotic relationship of the lay and monastic components cannot be sustained without the practice of generosity. The monastics receive no compensation for their teachings or civil engagement. This makes these pure acts of generosity. Laity receive nothing in return for putting food in monastics' alms bowls as they walk through the village each morning. This makes such offerings pure acts of generosity. There's no obligation, no coercion involved. The material helplessness of the monks and nuns is the spark that keeps the engine running and the mutual appreciation of lay and monastic is the fuel. It forms the basis of an economy of gifts that then extends out to a widespread ethic of generosity 
that infuses lay life in general. To be most effective, it's important that opportunities and benefits for generosity be distributed evenly. Monastic rules require that the almseeker not show bias for the houses of the wealthy or the house of the French chef, but that they walk past the house of the pauper as well, for whom even the devout gift of a spoonful of rice gains great merit. They also require that they do not try to gain individual advantage over other monks and nuns by endearing themselves to families with that in mind, or by impressing families with reports of their attainments. So this is why the Buddha does not allow monastics to talk about their attainments. It's important to recognize that there is little here in the way of hierarchy. What authority the Sangha holds arises from its own attainments, teachings, and conduct, and the benefit that the Sangha brings to the lay people. The Sangha has no coercive power beyond the layperson's willingness to accept advice or admonition or to view the monastic as a role model. The laity actually has more coercive power. Dissatisfaction with the monastic Sangha can turn into withdrawal of support, a constant external check on the purity of the institutional Sangha. Through their support of the Sangha, as well as the rest of the Buddhist community, lay Buddhists develop the joyful feeling of doing their share for the sasana, of participating fully in bringing the civilizing influence of the noble ones into the community, and in upholding the sasana to preserve Buddhism in its pristine purity for future generations. At the same time, the larger society becomes a culture of awakening one that offers the optimal support and encouragement to those who aspire to awakening and that secures the optimal benefit from the Dharma for the future happiness and virtue of those of more modest aspirations. It represents an oasis of sanity in a world otherwise perpetually spinning crazily out of kilter, out of control. We'll stop here. Next week, I want to talk about the importance of refuge in all of this, the development of reverence for the three pillars of Buddhist wisdom, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the Sangha in both of its meanings. Thank you.